1: You're listening to MoneyWise with Davidson Capital Management. Got your Money Wise guys back inside the Money Wise studio with me for this weekend show. I have my brother Jeff, Joe Rust, and I am your host, Kyle Davidson. For any new listeners to the Money Wise program, Davidson Capital Management is a fee-only registered investment advisor. We're in our 33rd year of business and with offices in San Antonio and Corpus Christi. We have your investment management needs covered throughout Central and South Texas And if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation or take advantage of a portfolio review and analysis from your Money Wise guys, you can reach us in our San Antonio or Corpus Christi office toll free at 1-800-275-2162. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to MoneyWise at DavidsonCap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the MoneyWise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So as we kick off every weekend's Money Wise program, I turn it over to my brother Jeff to go into the numbers from Wall Street from last week. So Jeff, take it away. Okay, In the week just passed. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was down about
0: 51 points or two-tenths of 1%. The S&P 500 last week was down about 36 points or nine-tenths of 1%. And the NASDAQ last week was down about 183 points or 1.6% now for the year to date the dow jones industrial average is down 13.9% the s&p 500 year to date is down 18.9% and the nasdaq year to date is down 26.8% thank you jeff you're welcome
1: so another uh, another wild week on wall street although we did have a little bit of a attack of the fridays in a good way although we still ended the week negative it was far less negative than what it would have been without Friday. Um, yeah, yeah.
0: We've here of late. Fridays have been not necessarily great days, but uh, the one just passed was the exception, uh, really driven by, um, some earnings on a few stocks. Uh, we happen to own both of them. Uh, I think United Health had a very nice earnings report on Friday, which is the largest uh, percentage portion of the S, of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Um, I think it's almost. Uh, I like think it's over ten percent of the Dow Jones Industrial Average is United Health, uh, and it had a very nice day. I think they, they had good earnings and they raised their guidance for the year. And then all the banks. There's a lot of bank earnings this week. You know, earlier in the week, uh, there was some. Not so great earnings and the markets reacted negatively. And then as the week went on, there were some better bank earnings and, and the sentiment seemed to change on the bank stocks. And, uh, there's a number of bank stocks in the Dow Jones industrial average. Uh, the second biggest component of the Dow is uh, Goldman Sachs, which we also in our portfolio, which had a, had a nice day also on Friday. So, you know, I, I hate to throw a little bit of cold water on the 600 point gain. Uh, that uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average had on Friday, but I would say a th- at least a third of that gain, if not more, uh, came from two stocks, which just happened to be the two largest percentage components of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which account for, I think, a little over 16 percent of the Dow. It's just in United Health and and Goldman Sachs, which again we 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 own both of those stocks in our portfolio. But, but, but let's
1: not forget the S&P had a very good day on Friday, as well as the NASDAQ being up almost 1.80%, which did not include United Healthcare or Goldman Sachs and the NASDAQ, which is more tech, more of a, you know, tech focused index on the NASDAQ side. But I, I think really where more of the optimism or the buying that came in on Friday was Some of the information that was taken out of the producer price index information that came out on Friday and some of the input components into the producer price index saw quite a bit of a decline, which in essence the market interpreted as what the Fed is doing and what they're trying to do is starting to see, you know, the cause is starting to have an effect of bringing some of the inflation on those input prices that go into the producer price index. There's now coming down. I think something else that occurred on Wednesday or on Thursday is we had a couple Fed governors talking. Now Bullard, who we've talked about on this show, Fed Governor Bull, Governor Bullard, who typically when he opens up his mouth, you can at least take 100 to 200 points off the Dow Jones. Uh, That day when he speaks, I call it the uh, Bullard put, he came out and said that he's in support of a 75 basis point increase, along with another Fed governor, because I know on Thursday, a good chunk of the selling that we saw on Thursday was some hand wringing from the market based on the consumer price index information that came out on Wednesday where the market was interpreting and the possibility of the federal reserve raising interest rates at the end of this month by a full 1% uh, when the fed meets on July 26th and 27th, but coming out with Bullard being one of the most bearish of the fed governors saying that he's not really in support of a hundred basis point or a 1% increase, but he is for 75 basis points. I think brought a little bit uh, of some calm over the market on Thursday because the market was down much further on Thursday and it was still negative for the day, but we saw quite a bit of recovery after uh, Bullard spoke as we closed down on Thursday. Well, one, gotcha. of the things,
2: one of the things that I noticed this week, and I was wondering about this, and, and Kyle and I have a buddy that's that's uh, been in the mortgage industry, and you're looking at the the financial sector and the and the and the bank stocks, and you're wondering, okay, at the end of the year, what's the loan situation going to look like? How many how many of these uh, stocks or these companies are going to have to write off some of these loans, and what does it look like? And we all kind of knew this in the back of our minds, but a lot of these these companies, and then Wells Fargo even talked about it. They have plenty of reserves. So when you look at a bellwether, look at going forward, and you look at the financial stocks and the financial and the uh, the bank stocks essentially. It could give you a guide on how things are going to look later in the year, but I wanted to point that out because it seems like maybe we've learned some lessons in the past, and hopefully, hopefully, a lot of companies do are in a similar situation where they have plenty of cash on the sideline in reserves for situations like this. But
1: well, we know we know the the rule changes that came from the financial crisis, and that was to ensure that these money, money center banks stuck to very strict uh, capital, you know being being capitalized. They have rules on the level of, of capitalization that they have in reserves for that exact situation, Joe, that you're talking about, like we saw during the housing crisis with all the liar loans, all the adjustable rate mortgages, all the foreclosures that came down the pipeline. And right now, when you have less than 10% of the outstanding mortgages, either on an adjustable rate or given to subprime borrowers, I don't, foresee us to be seeing the kind of mortgage crisis that we saw during the housing crisis because the quality of borrower is far and beyond better than what it was back in the mid-2000s. Well, let's take our first commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. two one six two if you'd like to send us an email you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com and don't forget you can subscribe to the Moneywise podcast through apple podcast or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments and don't forget to like the show so if you're just tuning into this weekend's Moneywise program continuing to recap the happenings of wall street from last week with the dow You know, being down two-tenths of a percent, the S&P down nine-tenths, NASDAQ down 1.6%. Even though it was a down week, it was down a lot less than it was going into Friday. And we talked on the show, previous shows for months, you know, sometimes we have the attack of the Fridays, where sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. Well, this past Friday, it was very good uh, and had a very nice run in the market to whittle away at the negative positions that we spent Monday through Thursday in.
0: So we had some nice earnings news and some shorts came in and covered. Next week we have, uh, I think it was 65 of the 500 companies. We're starting to get we're, yeah, we're, we're definitely getting the meat and potatoes uh, next week. We don't get the big cap tech until the end of the month. Uh, around the time the Federal Reserve will be raising rates, either it's going to be 75 or 100. Since we really haven't been here, if you remember last time after we got that hot CPI number, it was, it was clear that the Fed was trying to get a message out that they were going to go 75 basis points on that next meeting instead of the 50 that the market expected as a way of, of not surprising the market. I'm not necessarily hearing that kind of talk as much. So I'm 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 with you. I'm 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 probably Bullard is is right that they're gonna go 75 and not go 100. Uh I mean the CPI number, the PPI number, the headlines were not good. They just weren't good. Eleven point three percent up on PPI producer prices and nine point, I think it was nine point one That's correct on, on the CPI. CPI and uh the expectations on PPI increase result was, was supposed to be 10.7. Uh, yes, it was down a little bit from the March record, for sure. But three-tenths of a percent off of the record in March, which was, PPI was 11.6. And here we are in June, and it was 11.3. I'm sorry, but three-tenths of a percent isn't moving the needle very much. Got a long I'll way think, to go. Yeah, I got a long, long, long way to go. Just a long way to go. That, I mean, three tenths of a percent in three months don't mean diddly squat. So to me, it pushes all these interest rate increases out even further into the future. But now, Jeff, the thing about the banks, the thing about hold on, I want to say something about the banks. We can all agree there are no there are no systemic issues in the banks like there were in 08-09. eight oh nine. We're not going to have those kind of issues coming into the market. They're not a factor in influencing. Stock prices going forward. What the banks, though, are, tell, are, will tell us is the health of the consumer. Now, J.P. Morgan this week and Jamie Dimon, I think we can all admit he's been a little bearish. A little. Can we agree on that? He's been a little bearish.
1: <laughs> I heard the word hurricane come That's out right. his mouth. He like had, a hurricane hur- event.
0: The last, yeah, the last earnings, re- I guess bearish. the last earnings release, which which would have been in April, he talked about a hurricane on the horizon. When J.P. Morgan came out with their earnings this week, they were not, you know, he was not uh, any less bearish. And what did they do? They raised their loan loss reserves. Um, I believe there was another bank that suspended their buyback or something. Maybe I'm remembering that wrong. No, you, no, you're, no you're correct. I believe it was okay. Wells
1: Fargo. Okay, it was Wells Fargo. So
0: the, the banks are going to give us a snapshot into the health of the consumer by what they're, and also, in, in, by, to some extent, the, the, the health, at least from a credit point of view, of corporate America. Uh, by raising their loan loss reserves, they're saying, we see trouble on the horizon. Now, how much trouble? That's what every. That's what we're all trying to figure out. That's what everybody's trying to handicap in the marketplace. You know, the this whole question about how much can the Federal Reserve, through raising interest rates and quant and their quantitative tightening, uh, process, can they bring down demand enough to bring down inflation enough without destroying Employment that's the, that is the central question of all of this to me that 's driving everything, and all three of us have different views on that, as does you know the hundreds of thousands or millions of people that are making investment decisions for client portfolios on a daily basis yes, Kyle
1: here 's the question I have for you, Jeff. Would the Federal Reserve raises interest rates? isn't it typically raised and then there's a lagging effect from their, dis, from their monetary policy decisions, correct? So if we saw consumer price index for last month at 9.1, we saw PPI, what did you say, at 11.3? 11.3. 11.3. But then we had short covering and we had the Dow up over 600 points on Friday when we just had the two hot, the hottest CPI number since 1981 where the market didn't fall off of a cliff from that number. We saw producer price at 11.3 and the market actually shot up on Friday, whether it's short covering or not, the market shot up. The Federal Reserve, yes, is going to be raising rates at the end of this month, most likely three-quarters of 1%. But there's always a lagging effect of them making monetary policy changes and then how that affects the producer prices and consumer price index. And I agree with you. Three-tenths of a 1% decrease isn't anything to write home to mom about, But I think what was extrapolated out of the producer price number on Friday is, again, they saw a little bit more of a dramatic increase, more than just a few tenths of a percent, in some of the inputs that go into the PPI that they're now starting to see a pickup in the effect of the, of the of of the Federal Reserve raising interest rates, that lagging effect is starting to take hold. It's starting to have some teeth, and it's starting to bite into it. And I think what the market might have been saying on Friday, it's still too early to tell, but what the market might have been saying to investors on Friday is that that was the peak. That was the top of PPI. That was the top of CPI, because something else that came out on Friday was consumer confidence, which... Improved from the lowest print it ever had in its history ever? last month. Okay, Pepper. how much did it improve? How much did it improve? I believe it was at fifty four. I think it went to fifty four point three. From, if memory serves me correct, it was um, right just past fifty. Okay, we all have, anything we all have below fifty is really bad. We all have different opinions, but I mean, what does it mean to your
2: portfolio? If you're listening to the show or your client, what does it mean to your portfolio? We have been in this trading range probably. I mean, I can't even count how many months we've been in this trading range. And, and,
0: we're not in a trading range. I'm sorry,
2: what, Joe. I have to interrupt you. We've what, what, been in this downward
0: trend going back to last November. And we're still solidly in the middle of that downward trend. Ta- I'm, even- I'm
2: talking about more short term. I'm talking about in the last say three months we were all the all the way down mm-hmm. to 3600 on the S&P and we've been upwards around 4000 on the S&P right in that area since so so June at, 16th for about a month for about a month for, okay for a month what i'm what i'm getting at is and the point that i'm getting at is my belief is until we see a decline a couple of months in a row in the CPI all right and that's when we're going to say all right finally rates are coming down a little bit and we might have some movement on the market. I do not think this last Friday was an indication that we we bottomed out on the market. That's just my opinion. I think we're going okay. to have a couple consecutive months of declining interest rates or, or rather inflation coming down. All right. For us to to say, all right, in my opinion, now it's time to look at buying a little
1: bit in the market. Well, I, I would say this, Joe. The core the core PCE has been coming down since February. That is the primary measure that the Fed uses. Now, granted, the Fed's last meeting, they said we're going to be paying more attention right now to the CPI because that's what everyone feels when they go to the grocery Mm -hmm. store, when they go to the gas pump. We know the price of a barrel of oil has come down. We know that gas prices have come down maybe from $5 to $4.50. It's not a huge relief but it has definitely helped. So we're starting to see some demand destruction. I read a report this past week that we're now starting to build hundreds of thousands of barrels of oil per day here in the U.S. in reserve that's not being used. So it is showing, starting to show some of that demand destruction that is then added to the the falling of prices for a barrel of oil, but it's still high. It's still but, high, but it's not $150 a barrel. All I'm saying have
0: electricity, is- have electric bills gone down? Ins- well we're in the middle of the summer.
1: We're in the middle of the summer. These companies Have are going to take advantage food, of it. You know, property taxes that are going to be well, hitting later this year. But but, but the state <clears> the state of Texas is taking advantage of these dramatic increases in the price of uh, the price of a home to be elevating the valuations of all these homes to fill their coffers with much cash when they can get their hands on it. So, of course, property taxes are going to be going up. But, I mean, yes, we're all feeling the effects of inflation. All I'm saying is is that there was some data that came out, particularly on this past Friday, that these input costs are coming down. And when the Fed raises rates, it's a lagging effect to change the overall number. But I think that the CPI, it peaked at 9-1, and we'll see it start to come down from here moving forward. Let's take another commercial break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. Two seven five two one six two. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap dot com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Moneywise podcast through Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps, where you can leave your comments and don't forget to like the show. So I know Jeff. During the commercial break, you're winding up for the pitch uh, after we went from the to the bottom no, of the I- hour break. Uh, and I'm, and you'll probably be surprised I'm give what, I, what, I,
0: what I'm getting ready to say. I, I mean, I don't disagree with uh, some of the things that you said. I think that we may have seen peak inflation, uh, but just because we've seen peak inflation doesn't mean that they're going to stop raising interest rates because they're not going to let inflation stay at eight or nine percent. They're just this not going to do it. It's going to take, it. it it take time. It's going to take time. Target
2: their target is 2%. Yeah, well, that, to, we they know that's really it. I they
0: I've have been to raise it. I've been reading a lot there. I've been reading a lot of uh, reports from the various uh, big brokerage organizations, the biggest one on the planet, BlackRock. I just finished reading some of their comments and they they happen to agree with what we said a few weeks ago is that, you know, 2 2% is a is a fantasy. They didn't that's not their words, those are my words um and that the fed will have to adjust their target for inflation going forward because if they're going to try to get to 2% say in the next year it would require so many interest rate increases that it would be really bad for the economy and they're not going to be able to accomplish that and so they're going to have to settle for a number higher than 2 whether it's 4 whether it's Paul 3 Volker. Three oh, Volker, and a half. I don't know, uh, but yeah, Volker it, was happy here's, with four in the Here is the thing: if if the unemployment statistics continue to stay, you know, in and around three and a half, four percent, it's going to get. And, and but in and inflation, you know, we're down what three tenths of a percent on producer prices since March. Well, that's just not going to fly. Yeah, they got to get it down a lot more than that, and so that's going to if if if, if, un, if unemployment is not going up appreciably, they're just going to keep raising rates. That'll give them room and an excuse to keep raising rates if unemployment. Because remember, what is what's their mandate? Full employment and price stability. So if, if employment's holding up, they can keep raising interest rates. Well, is that going to be good for stocks? If the 10-year treasury is at 5% a year from now?
2: It'll make them look a lot less attractive, that's for sure. And then, well,
0: it, It's going it's, it's to have this, we're going to have this, this what they call it, evaluation compression where this, all this focus is going to be on price earnings. If I can get 5% in a 10-year treasury, am I going to pay 20 times earnings or more for Microsoft? Well, I don't know. And its growth prospects may have come down, too. Well, I, I, I just don't know if I'm going to pay that. That's just one stock. There's thousands of stocks in the stock market. But we've had a little bit of earnings news this week from the banks. Uh, the market for the week was down. We got the meat and potatoes coming next week. If we get more negative news than we do positive news out of earnings, because the only thing economically next week, we've got uh, housing. We're going to find out how healthy housing is. Now, does anybody believe we're going to get some blowout great numbers from housing next week? We've got housing starts and existing home sales. Heck no, we're not. Now, is the market going to react negatively, negatively to that, or has it been priced in? I would heavy, say that we have I, leading I, I, economic indicators also on, on Thursday.
1: Well, I could just say Anadoli had a conversation with a client of ours that's in the lumber industry, and I asked him you know, what they're seeing in prices, and he said the floors <laughs> dropped out of it. And he said that the price of just sheet plywood has come down dramatically. Yeah, so, that's again, in some – yes, uh, yeah, but, but, that, but that's my whole point is that some of these inflationary inputs – are really starting to come down, and there is a lagging effect of what the Fed is doing from a monetary policy standpoint before it really starts to show up. I agree with you, Jeff. Yes, going down three or four tenths over the span of three or four months is nothing to get excited about. But because of the lagging effect of the monetary policy, we could start to see that accelerate over the next three to four months. And and we've talked about, like you said, on this program more than a month ago – Paul Volcker in the 80s, when inflation was back at this level, they they changed their mandate, and they were happy getting it to 4%, and I think the Fed needs to start wrapping their mind around increasing their mandate from 2 to 3 to 3.5 to 4, and I'm wondering if they were to do such a thing, how the market is going to interpret that. I would see that as more of a positive for the market because then that means they're getting closer to their mandate. That means they have to raise interest rates fewer times and eventually stop and let things settle out. And then maybe we could start to see some repricing and inflated repricing coming back in on the growth side of the market where a good majority of the market's destruction has occurred in that particular side of the asset class on the growth side. But it's going to be it's going to be a wait and see. That's what we've been talking about on this program going on months now. Is that you just have to be patient, have your buy list ready, continue to maintain that long term perspective, but don't be complacent in your portfolio either. Do not be complacent. So I, I think one thing we can all come to the conclusion of if you're sitting on
2: cash is now the time to put all of your money to work in the market. We're all going to agree that that is not the time. Now is not the time to do that. I mean, if you're if you're in but a four, you you're dollar cost averaging, and you well, know you're the, the down twenty percent. Go ahead.
0: Jeff. Just this, what do we do this week? We have what probably a half dozen new clients in the last sixty days, mm-hmm. and we invested stocks. What? How much money we put in stocks this week? How less than five? I mean,
1: whatever percent. our normal position would be, we divided it by six. I mean, six. Right. By six. So we put a sixth in. So we are slowly, slowly nibbling, but right well, now it's primarily focused on the index base of our portfolio, not the individual names per se, because we're right in the midst of earnings season. So we want to hear what they have to say. Before we start putting those positions, or even start just slowly nibbling at those positions. So, if you are, if you do find yourself in a situation where you are sitting on a large level of cash and you're a longer term investor you know coming no one's ever going to be able to time the the bottom perfectly just like you're not going to be able to time the top perfectly so this is why dollar cost averaging is so critical in any portfolio and as joe mentioned if you're participating in a 401k you're dollar cost averaging every paycheck you get and so we always we always educate you dollar cost average on the way in to your investment portfolio you dollar cost average on the way out when you're in, when you're in retirement and in your withdrawal strategy And that's the most logical and and the most sound way to be investing and putting money to work or taking money out to live off of in retirement. So, But we would say definitely divide it over a very extended point in time. I mean, I remember during the COVID pullback, we were putting, what, 1% to 2% of all the cash we raised back to work per week. So we were, I guess we'd say, leaking the money in very slowly. Yeah, Joe.
2: Well, one of the things that this is—we all have different philosophies. I would say that's what makes a team approach work well, especially when you're when you're managing money and and a a situation. You look at the two of the last three years; we've been down 20% or more. But my personal risk tolerance is different than somebody else's risk tolerance. The one thing I I always feel comfortable with: the market's down 20%, and I'm buying. I know one thing that is 100% guaranteed: I'm not buying at an all-time high, so I feel okay about it. That makes sense. But not everybody feels like that. So, I mean.
1: No, that's right. But you you have a lot out
2: there. Yes, exactly. I I feel better about buying when the market's down 20% than maybe somebody else.
1: You have a different risk tolerance. You also have a different risk capacity. And risk capacity is really predicated based on an investor's age. Um, And so it's just you never can time it perfectly on the bottom. You can never time it perfectly at the top, and so this is a point in time. Even though we might not be at our what we have talked about on this program is our base case of thirty four hundred on the S and P five hundred, we're not too terribly far from it. And if you're dollar cost averaging and it slowly, it's not necessarily a bad thing. And it's also not necessarily a bad thing to average the price of your positions down as opposed to averaging them up. So
0: this is just not a place to get aggressive about putting large percentages of of idle cash in the market. Absolutely. Very, very early in this rate raising cycle. And we've only had three interest rate increases, if my memory is correct. correct. The fourth one will occur this month and it'll Mm -hmm. be either 75 or a full percent, which we haven't had since the 1990s. If they go all the way to one percent. Um, the other thing is, is we've got all these earnings. Is we have got to hear these earnings come in. We've got to hear what the outlook is. We've got to see what these companies are seeing out into the future to, to, to build some confidence that, may, well, maybe we're getting near a low. I think the lows for the market will be put in between now and the election. It's like a 50-50 between now and the election. I think it's a 75% chance the lows will be in before the end of the year. Okay. That's my take.
1: And before we go to break, I want to set up for the next segment because we want everyone to stay tuned because we want to talk about one of our <laughs> most loathed subjects, and that is equity indexed annuities with an example of an equity indexed annuity with a nine-year track record. And we're going to talk about that after commercial break. You're listening to MoneyWise with Davidson Capital Management. Your Money Wise guys will be back after this. If you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise@davidsoncap.com. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the Moneywise podcast or Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming podcast apps where you can leave your comments. And don't forget to like the show. So as I set up before we went to our last commercial break, talking about one of our most loathed products that are sold Uh to investors and that is equity indexed annuities and i can tell you with the kind of markets that we've had so far this year those free lunch those free dinner those learning um, discussions at the Delmar annex those <laughs> invitations are just flying out left and right because how about you how wanna, about
0: all the radio how about all the radio all radio that people's true. fears no, just right. the radio just the radio ads much less the shows and so every once in a while we get an opportunity to review one of these equity indexed annuities with an actual statement with actual money invested in an equity indexed annuity and it just so happens that this particular equity indexed annuity was sold by a person who runs a weekly radio show in the San Antonio market, runs multiple radio shows in the San Antonio market. Uh, recently, just recently, a similar show began running in the Corpus Christi market on a different station other than the one you're hearing us on today. I wouldn't be surprised if they use the same company. And it really doesn't matter the name of the company. This particular company we've seen many times, it's very popular. But they're all about the same. They're all pretty poor.
1: Oh, you're being too kind. And and poor is being being too kind. kind. We can't say the seven deadlies. And so,
0: again, this is an actual example of an equity and extenuity that's been owned, in this particular case, over eight years, beginning at the beginning of 2014 to the beginning of 2022. Uh, this particular investor put in $250,000 into an equity-indexed annuity uh, the first week of January of 2014. Now, equity-indexed annuities only give you an annual statement. So the statement I have in front of me is from the beginning of 2022. So it covers a full eight years of the market, okay, from 2014, beginning of 2014 to the beginning of 2022. The return, if this individual was to surrender today, eight years, you know, eight years later, if they surrendered at the beginning of January on its anniversary, this equity indexed annuity would have returned a compounded rate of return of one half of 1% for eight years. Ladies and gentlemen, I did not misspeak one half of one percent it shows that this this particular client could have liquidated the equity next annuity and collected a little over two hundred and sixty thousand dollars so ten thousand dollars they made on a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar investment over eight years now that's Turning it in. They have to pay a penalty because all the next annuities have long surrender penalties.
1: This one is for 10 years. This
0: one, I believe that's correct, yes. Now, this this client also signed up for the guaranteed income rider, which the vast majority, I think 99.9% of the time it's sold. And signing up for that rider greatly reduces your return. It's still going to be poor. This just makes it even worse, more like awful. So you go from poor to awful by signing up for the guaranteed income rider. Now, if you just took the just the stated value of the annuity over these eight years, what they're stating on this particular statement, after all their fees, all their expenses, all their fancy interest rate crediting and all that, this client is has a return of a little over 1%.
1: Compounded for eight years without surrendering it. If they continue, to, it, it, if they they continue, continue to own it, they continue to own it, it.
0: On that moment in time, at the beginning of this year, on its anniversary date, the annuity is worth two hundred and seventy-one thousand dollars. They made twenty-one thousand dollars.
1: Jeff, so the, the sales pitch. Just the, okay, I was going to say, finish. Right. Let, let, me, let me
0: finish all
1: the numbers because the next
0: one is really going to blow your mind. And the reason is because these things are sold on fear. You know, the market goes up, the market goes down, there's crashes, there's this, there's that. You know, you've got to, you know, if you want to participate, you know, in the market all you know, with upside but no downside, you know, you've got to buy these things. I'm sorry, I'm being a little sarcastic here, right? So buying this for this particular client, this particular example made them one, compounded for eight years. If they had taken the same amount of money, $250,000, and invested it on the exact same date in a moderate asset allocation portfolio, and we took the value of that account on the same day, eight years later, on its eight-year anniversary, after all fees and all expenses, their return would have been over 6% compounded. And the account would have a value of over $405,000. Now, ladies and gentlemen, think about for a minute what's happened in the markets in the last eight years. We had a 20% down in the fourth quarter of 2018. We had the worst pandemic. In a hundred years, that caused the, the S and P five hundred decline by thirty percent in one month in 2020, 20,
1: 2020.
0: Among all the other things that went on for the last eight years, and you know, we still managed, you know, somehow to make six over six percent compounded. Net
1: of fees and expenses.
0: Net of fees and expenses. So you know, these guys that are out here selling this fear. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you these, you know, these, these, I can't tell you how horrible these products are. I mean, it's and this horrible. Is why, that's that's 100, $130,000 in value that was not earned by, because they chose to put it into something that where they could lose no money if the market goes down well they 're not making any money either
1: you're just not making any money and this That's is why and this is why investors cannot allow their fears to drive their investment strategy. Annuities are sold they're not bought, and this is a classic example because you do not receive. All of the upside and none of the downside. In fact, we just ran the numbers. You're earning 1%. That's not going to put anyone on Easy Street. It'll put the broker on Easy Street. That's right. If you'd like to learn more, you can always give us a call, 1-800-275-2162. With that, we're coming to the top of the hour break. So we're going to take the break, go into the news and when we come back, we'll be diving into the second hour of this weekend's MoneyWise program and continuing with investor education. So stay tuned and we'll do that after this. You're listening to MoneyWise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after the news.
0: All opinions expressed by Davidson Capital Management on MoneyWise are solely theirs and are based upon information they consider reliable and is subject to change without notice. You should be aware of the risk in investing in any security or investment strategy discussed on the show. Before acting, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and should seek advice from your own financial or investment advisor. Past performance is not indicative of future results.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to MoneyWise with Davidson Capital Management. We've got my father, John, my brother, Jeff. I'm your host, Kyle Davidson, and we are heading into the second hour of this weekend's Money Wise program. Now, if you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at DavidsonCap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. If you missed the first hour of MoneyWise, you can
0: go to our website at davidsoncap.com Click on the radio show link where you can listen to today's show as well as past Money Wise programs. You can also subscribe to our iTunes feed by clicking on the blue note in the upper right-hand corner of our homepage at
1: DavidsonCap.com. Thank you, Jeff. You're welcome. Well, now, as we utilize every second hour of the Money Wise program going into investor education and wanted to go into a topic that we haven't talked about in quite some time, um, it seems that a lot of our educational segments, we talk, to, we talk to our listeners about the accumulation and the saving side of retirement and, and getting to that uh, retirement red zone, but we, we seldom discuss what happens once you're in retirement, and, and really more importantly and f- more focused on how do you spend in retirement, and the appropriate level of spending in retirement to make sure that your retirement nest egg lasts a lifetime. And there was an article, Dad, that you found for MarketWatch in the Wall Street Journal, and it really spurred us into saying to ourselves, you know what, we need to talk about this because I don't think we've covered it enough on this program. I, I think some of our listeners are currently in retirement or right on the verge of going into retirement, and that there'd be a very solid topic to go into so our listeners can start doing their own planning. And what I what I call it when I work with our clients or prospective clients, I call it financial road mapping. That's just the, the name I've given it uh, myself as far as what we do for our current clients, for prospective clients as they're transitioning into retirement. Just to give them an idea of this is your nest egg. This is what you're projected to need to take out on a monthly basis and on an annual basis, and this is what can happen to your assets as you go through retirement. But there was a survey that was done in this article, and the title of the article is "The Surprising Amount Retirees Spend." And this article really kind of goes in two different directions. It, it kind of it, it goes into the direction of retirees not really spending hardly anything of their retirement nest egg because they're terrified to spend a single dollar.
3: They're concerned about outliving their money.
1: They're concerned about that. But then there's the other side of the coin of retirees going, I don't want to use the word nuts, but spending a little bit more than they should and actually upsizing. And because, again, looking at a sizable amount of assets, let's say you retire, you 've accumulated a million one point five million two million dollars that it gives them a sense of security that hey, I can go from a thousand square foot house I want to build me a new thirty five hundred square foot house in retirement because I have all of these assets and not realizing what kind of significant impact that can make on their nest egg and so there was a survey done uh, back in February, and they found that not only are some retirees not downsizing but thirty percent. Of these retirees that they surveyed have actually upsized their lifestyle and have upsized their their, 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 and have upsized their homes and their lifestyle. I I was quite surprised seeing a thirty percent increase. Now, granted, this is their sample size; it's not a huge sample size, but uh, again, it's an interesting statistic that thirty percent of these retirees were upsizing um, as they as they moved into retirement. And I know that if any of our listeners went to a financial planner or went to a financial salesman and said, okay, here's, here's my nest egg. I want to start drawing assets off of it to live in retirement. How much should I be pulling out? And it seems that the rule of thumb in the brokerage community and the financial planning community has always been a 4% rule to be not taking out more than 4% of the total value of your portfolio on an annual basis now at Davidson Capital Management being that we're in our 26th year of business we have a little bit different experience because we have proof of our management philosophy and how it is performed in good markets, bad markets higher interest rate environments and, and of course the horribly low interest rate environment we're currently in and we have found that you know our clients have been able to average between a 6 and 7% withdrawal rate on an annual basis and not encroach on their principal assets they invested with us over the lifetime of the account and we utilize client number one that's been with us 26 plus years and what they've been able to withdraw from their account and have not only taken out more than they originally invested with us but actually have more in their account than what they originally invested with us so we know that our philosophy works because we have proof we have the numbers to prove it um but that 4% rule has been used by the financial service industry for many many years but now because of the extremely low interest rate environment some of some folks in the financial service industry are now changing that withdrawal rate to between 2 and 3%. I mean
3: that's just that's insane really.
1: That is low. Well in our opinion
0: the way we viewed this, this, the four percent rule, as as you talked about, Kyle, being used by our uh, competitors in on Wall Street, we've kind of looked at it as they're trying to keep the bar as low for themselves as possible. Uh, that way, they can charge higher fees, sell their products that have loads, uh, you know, sales charges attached to them, and and still meet their four percent maximum rate of withdrawal. Uh, target that they tell their clients that they want what they want their clients to stick to. So we the, by taking it down to two or three percent maximum withdrawal rate per year, that's lowering the bar even more than what was what we what we thought was a pre was a low bar to begin with. With a
1: four percent rule,
0: right? So if you're if you if you got a client that's got a million dollars. And you're telling well, you can only withdraw two percent a year. That's twenty thousand dollars.
3: Well, think about this. I mean, if you put it in the government bonds, ten year bonds right now, exactly, you don't need any of this. You can get right at two exactly. percent. So you don't you don't need to go to Wall Street to get a two percent withdrawal rate. I mean, you can do that on your own, dealing direct with the Federal Reserve. So that that's absurd. That's why I said that's insane. That's insane. Well, uh, they're
1: they're. Tr- I guess they're trying to cost themselves all the trailing commissions that Dad, you and I talked about on last weekend's show. They're they're trying to cost themselves a lot of commissions because, like you said, you can go directly to the treasury and buy government bonds, which is a guaranteed rate of return. The only guaranteed rate of return on Wall Street to generate that withdrawal yeah, to, rate of two to one percent. Whether it's
0: two, three, or four percent, in my opinion, this looks like a revenue enhancement to. Uh,
1: policy by wall street okay well let's take another commercial break you're listening to money wise with davidson capital management your money wise guys will be back after this welcome back you're listening to money wise with davidson capital management if you would like to learn more about the money wise guys you can go to our website at davidson dot com or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on monday to discuss your personal financial situation you can reach us in our corpus christi office at nine zero six zero zero seven zero or toll free at one eight hundred two seven five two one six two. And if you have an investment related question or topic you'd like for us to discuss here on the Money Wise program, you can send all your emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing our investor education, and it's an, uh, and it comes from an article, The Surprising Amount Retirees Spend, and we're talking about spending in retirement and some of the rules of thumb that we utilize with our clients at Davidson Capital Management, uh, but also just some tips for pre-retirees so they can do a quick determination with very simple calculations of whether or not they're potentially ready for retirement and kind of hop on that proverbial horse and riding off into the sunset, and some things that they can do and utilize some free calculators uh, that are online for them to do some of their at-home at calculations. Now, getting back to this article, there is a financial research firm. Uh, I, I love the name of it. It's called Hearts and Wallets. <laughs> <laughs> this this research firm, they surveyed uh, a little bit over 1,200 households aged 65 and older that had assets of more than $100,000. And the research researchers found that only 12%... Uh, or I shouldn't say only, they found out that 12% took out over twice the 4% rule, closer to a 9% withdrawal rate per year, but they also found that 28% withdrew less than 1%, and some of these folks surveyed didn't remove any assets at all from their retirement assets. Now, I would be assuming that these folks either have, A, taxable assets, and outside accounts because most likely they would be asking if it's IRAs or pensions or what have you, or they have traditional defined benefit plans and getting their pension payment. They decided not to take the cash lump sum option, which is what we recommend to any retiree at Davidson Capital Management to take that lump sum distribution from your pension so you gain control of those assets, or their lifestyle is so modest that their Social Security payments are more than covering their daily living expenses. I mean, that's what—that's the only thing I was able to take away from this survey of over 1,200 households that were surveyed. Um, but, you know, one thing that, that was interesting that came out of this article that really spurred us to want to talk about this is this mentality of chunks or nothing, and that means retirees going into their IRA accounts, going into their retirement accounts, and taking a chunk of money out at a particular period of time, as opposed to spreading those payments out over a monthly basis. And I wanted to talk about this, because being in business 26 years, we deal with this on a weekly basis at Davidson Capital Management, where... You know, we recommend that if you're going to be living off of your assets in retirement, to set up really kind of your own annuity. And I hate to even use the word annuity, but <laughs> I have to let all of our listeners know the definition of the word annuity means a periodic stream of payments. That's what an annuity means. Well, you can create your own annuity through an IRA without actually having to go and buy an annuity, and you do that by setting up a particular dollar amount that you're going to be withdrawing on a monthly basis from your retirement nest egg to live off of in retirement. And this is what we would recommend at Davidson Capital Management as opposed to taking chunks out. And the reason why we recommend not taking chunks of assets out are for a couple of reasons. First off, when you say, okay, I need $15,000 out of my account, and then four or five months later, I need $20,000 out of my account, and then a couple months later, you take another 10000 out, you get to the end of the year, you kind of forget the chunks of assets you took out earlier in the year, and so when you add up the total amount of withdrawals that you took, a lot of times you'll find out that you were violating, again, a at our at our firm, the six to seven percent withdrawal rate rule, where you're part of this group that's taking out nine, ten, eleven percent of your investable net worth well, by well, by taking it in chunks. But the other reason why we don't recommend doing this is you save for retirement typically through dollar cost averaging. If you're participating in a four hundred one k, you're dollar cost averaging into the market. It's also wise to dollar cost average out of the market because if you time the withdrawal of a big chunk of assets at the wrong time, it could wind up costing you at the end of the year when it comes down to your total performance return and growth of those assets. And an example that I like to use is think of your retirement nest egg like a golden goose. And that golden goose produces golden eggs, and those golden eggs are capital appreciation, dividend income, interest income, you want to keep that golden goose as large as possible, as long as possible to create the biggest golden eggs it possibly can. But if you're going in and taking large chunks of that golden goose out, then you start of course, leaking into the issue of the law of large numbers, meaning you want to keep your number, your retirement nest egg, as big as possible, as long as possible. So instead of taking $10,000 out, let's say you have to take $50,000 out a year. You know, Why don't you take $4,000 out a month as opposed to taking $15,000 out every quarter, You know, doing it that way? Uh, so bottom line is is our recommendation is to dollar-cost average assets out of your retirement nest egg as opposed to taking chunks at one time.
3: The other thing we run into is that we'll see situations where um, clients don't give us the heads up when they're getting ready to need a chunk withdrawal, and it really affects what a manager is doing with the money if he's not Total. It's If you know money's coming out every month, you can also plan as a portfolio manager. Mm-hmm. When you do the chunk withdrawals... It can force sales that you don't want to make. And it may not come at the right time. That's I mean, right. I mean, you're affecting the mm-hmm. return in your portfolio based on that chunk. Now, if you're fortunate enough to have taken a chunk out in early March of 2000, that would have been a whole lot better than taking a chunk out in October of 2000. But it averages out.
1: That's true, but it averages out over the life of the but account. But
3: if it's a large enough chunk, you start I mean when we know, you start taking out more than 7% a year, you, you run the risk. You're going to be you're going to be running out of money. I mean, depending on how many years this goes on. I mean, we know this. I mean, it's not something we have to study 25 years plus seeing this And we've had some wild and woolly markets since 1989, and we're going to have wild and woolly markets for the next 25 years. And so you start doing that, and you are going to run out of money. And and I would say, and Jeff and I have been here long enough, we have seen people run through retirement accounts in a very short period of time, run through inheritances. It happens time and time again, and we will – counsel these people and explain to them what's going to happen, but it seems like once it starts, they can't seem to stop it. Yeah. It's it's like hitting an
1: artery that you, you can't stop the bleeding.
3: And it isn't, I mean, it's their money. We <laughs> are there to work for them, but we're also there to counsel, and we will tell, you know, you are going to see this money disappear.
0: A lot of the time when we see people taking chunks out of their retirement accounts, uh, they are... More times than not uh purchases that they shouldn't be making um i've had to advise many times for folks they want to pay off their mortgage. The first thing that happens is they retire and they have a seven figure retirement and the very first thing they want to do is they want to get totally debt free and they want to pay off their house they want to pay off their cars they want to pay off their credit cards. Yeah, you know, some of these things we sh- should have been planned ahead of time to have them paid off before you reach retirement. Maybe not necessarily the house, but by taking all these chunks now and converting them to assets that are appreciating at a lower rate or appreciating at no, ra- you know, or depreciating, like you know, paying like off a, a car or like a vehicle. Uh, that that that's a real problem. We've also had to counsel folks many times that are and I'm going to use the term quote-unquote retiring because they're not actually retiring, they're changing careers. And they go in and raid their retirement nest eggs in order to change careers. And I've had several situations where clients would take out 50 or 60% of their money or more to start a new business, change careers, and... The, the the problem that we have as as long-term planners uh, of, of retirement nest eggs is that is this new endeavor going to replace this money that you're taking out in a short period of time? If you change careers at 50 years old, you know, and you're 10, 12 years away from retirement, and you take a million-dollar portfolio down to $500,000 – are you going to be able to replace that $500,000 in 10 years in this new endeavor to restore your retirement back to where it was before? That's a, that's a, that's a question that, I, that, any, that I've had to pose to several people who did end up taking all the money. And in, many, in several cases, we've had you know, one that completely went through their entire retirement nest egg uh,
1: in this new business endeavor. And that's not a good thing. We wouldn't recommend funding a new business endeavor with your retirement nest egg. You should go out and and find other forms of financing, and if you can't get it, maybe you shouldn't be going into that business venture. Well, we're coming to the bottom of the hour break. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at DavidsonCap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at 906-0070 or toll-free at 1-800-275-2162. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise at davidsoncap.com. So continuing our education of uh, about retirement spending, and, and really this whole conversation spurred by an article titled The Surprising Amount Retirees Spend. We've only got into a little bit of the article because we deal with this on a weekly basis at Davidson Capital Management, so we're really discussing our own personal experiences with our client base and just rules of thumb that we use as an investment advisor and also just some tips uh, for our listeners to utilize in getting prepared for retirement and to make sure that you don't outlive your assets. And one thing, Jeff, you were talking about, folks going into retirement wanting to pay off their cars, wanting to pay off their credit cards, wanting to pay off their house because they don't want to have any bills coming in. Right. And I think the the key there is is that – the retirement planning
0: process shouldn't begin the year before you're going to retire. The retirement planning process should be starting many years, you know, three years before. So that you, if three years before you're planning on retiring, you have these credit cards and this car payment and this house payment, then the planning should start three years before. Well, we need to get the credit cards paid off they're typically, First and foremost. they're typically at much higher interest rates you know the cars well that's a what are the rates the cars are at that's right you know, if if you bought them here recently uh, the their interest rates should be pretty low and probably wouldn't be advisable to pay them off uh, with retirement assets you know if their interest rates are really low
1: but because one thing that retirees forget is as you pull assets out of the IRA, they're fully taxable as ordinary income, so now you're paying taxes on this withdrawal to pay off this vehicle or to buy whatever. So, it's it's yeah, it's nice that you're paying it off, but you're having to pay taxes on that withdrawal. And, and the thing that, that we discuss here in the office is, well, look at the interest rate because we we get it we understand folks don't like to pay bills no one likes to pay bills they don't want to make that car payment on a monthly basis they don't want to make that mortgage payment on a monthly basis we get it but you have to take a look at what is my interest rate what am i paying if i have a car note at say two and a half percent you want to continue to finance that i know jeff and i get this question all the time should i be paying cash for a new vehicle well what's the interest rate well it's 3.5%. No, don't pay cash for it. Because just utilizing our our asset builder, our moderate allocation, our asset builder, our goal return for that account over the lifetime of that account is 7%. So I use 7% as the rule of thumb. If the interest rate is below 7%, you finance it. If the interest rate is above 7%, okay, we can discuss paying cash for it. Because Again, you want to keep that golden goose as large as possible, as long as possible to take advantage of compound interest and the law of large numbers. The other thing about removing
0: money from your retirement nest egg, especially if it's an IRA, to pay off bills is that the income taxes you have to
1: pay. That's right. And and, and if you don't have cash available to pay those income taxes, where do you have to rate again? To pay for those income taxes your IRA again, so it's an ongoing cycle. So if
0: you take, say, a $20,000 car loan at 3% and you take that $20,000 out of your retirement nest egg, you're giving up $20,000 that under our philosophy over the long term might earn an estimated 7% to pay off a 3% loan. So that's 4% on $20,000. You know, 4% on $20,000, I believe, is $800, if my member, if my math is correct. Uh, per year. Per year, exactly. And then on top of that, let's say you're in a 15% tax bracket and you take that $20,000 out. Well, now you're looking at, uh, what was that, $3,000 $3, in, in, in income taxes that you're going to have to pay pulling that money out. So you're giving up, $800 a year in additional income, compounded, and a $3,000 tax bill in a 15% tax bracket just to pay off a $20,000 car loan at 3%. Well, imagine how that works out if you want to expand it out to paying off a house. It could know, cost let's say you it's a c- lot. A couple hundred thousand dollar house and at a 4% interest rate. You know that those are those run into some really big numbers. I mean, the taxes alone. You know, if it was two hundred thousand dollars, you might you get hit with a twenty plus percent tax bill. That's forty thousand dollars in taxes.
1: Now, now talking about vehicle purchases or talking about homes, like you were talking about earlier, Jeff. If if you have several credit cards all carrying balances at a high interest rate. You really need to get those paid off before you even contemplate going into retirement. I mean, you really need to have consumer debt from the credit card standpoint, that financial house in order before you go into retirement. As I say to prospective clients or current clients, if you have a car note at a low interest rate, that's fine going into retirement. You have a mortgage payment at a low interest rate going into retirement, that's fine. But any consumer debt, you really want to have that paid off before you go into retirement because of all the reasons we were just explaining, you don't want to retire and have to pull out $75,000 to pay off credit card debt because now, here you go again, you're having to pay tax on that distribution to pay these credit cards off. So if you find yourself thinking about retirement and you're sitting on $20,000, $25,000 in credit card debt, you need to focus on paying off that debt first so you don't find yourself in a situation where you go and you retire and now you're having to pull out 8 nine, ten 9 10% a year out of your retirement nest egg to keep up with all of these bills. But how do you figure out how much do I need in retirement? Now I will tell you this, if we all knew when the last day on earth was going to be for each and every one of us, boy retirement planning would be so simple, it would be so easy. But unfortunately no one knows when their last day on earth is going to be. So you always have to prepare, the oldest saying in the book, prepare for a rainy day. So what you need to do and what we recommend is if you want to maintain your lifestyle, as I say to prospective clients, if you're used to eating steak, three times a week don't think that once you go into retirement you're going to be eating pb and j and rice and beans three times a week instead of steak so we recommend to take 12 months of your spending and average them out add up 12 months and if you haven't If you don't keep good records and you're thinking about retirement, you need to start keeping a record every month of what you're spending for your cell phone, your electricity, your water, your entertainment, food, all of your expenses. You add up 12 months, divided by 12, you get your average average. And once you have that average, you multiply it by 12 again. That is your withdrawal rate per year that you need to take out in order to maintain that lifestyle. Now, if that dollar amount divided by how much you've saved is greater, that withdrawal rate is greater than, say, 7%, then you need to either A, lower your living expenses somehow, or B, you need to work longer and you need to save more. And, again, there's Financial Calculators. There's a website called financialcalculators.com. I absolutely love this website. You can utilize it for free. It has so many calculators and so many different consumer finance and retirement planning arenas, it will blow your mind. And it's a and it's a website that I use very, very often. In fact, I used it today. So utilize financial dot com but you need to sit down and do this work don't just go into retirement blindly and figure out what you're going to need to be spending on a monthly basis and that's what we would recommend is taking monthly withdrawals not chunks you have to get out of the chunk mentality and we understand emergencies arise where you do have to tap in more than than what you are taking out on a monthly basis. We get that. But don't make it a habit.
0: I was gonna say the the key to managing retirement assets to me comes down to one word flexibility. Absolutely. And flexibility means that your retirement assets are not invested in instruments that take that away. Yeah, that that reduce your ability to withdraw if an unforeseen event comes comes you know happens, and I'm kind of laying this at the feet of non-publicly traded REITs or private placements or annuities of all different kinds,
1: or even taking a defined benefit payment from a traditional pension. That would be something else. Right. Taking a traditional roll, pension, yeah. Roll instead of taking the lump sum,
0: you roll. You just go on and say, "I'm going to take the pension, and that's it." Because once you lock yourself in to taking that pension payment, you're done. You you. That's the that's it. You're only getting that amount of money for the rest of your life, for the rest of your life, and your spouse's life. And then once those two exp- typically once once if you choose the right the, the particular option where you get you get a pension payment for your lifetime and your wife gets a pension payment for her
1: lifetime there's no other assets going to the uh, estate and it's not those payments are not adjusted for inflation so every month that goes by that pension payment is buying less and they're also than not guaranteed that's right no matter how strong the corporation is and I know the, the refinery businesses here in the Corpus Christi area are very good at taking care of their employees. I mean, we've seen it firsthand. But there are no guarantees in life. And when you have your pension and you're taking those pension payments, and if that pension goes insolvent, very bad things can happen. And we'll talk about that when we come back from our last commercial break. You're listening to MoneyWise with Davidson Capital Management. We'll be back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Money Wise with Davidson Capital Management. If you'd like to learn more about the Money Wise guys, you can go to our website at davidsoncap.com. Or if you'd like to give us a call in our office on Monday to discuss your personal financial situation, you can reach us in our Corpus Christi office at nine zero six zero zero seven zero or toll-free at one 800 275 Two one six two, And if you'd like to send us an email, you can send all emails to moneywise@davidsoncap.com. So we're in our last segment of this weekend's Money Wise program. Uh, before we went to break, Jeff was talking about maintaining flexibility in retirement. And I was talking about taking pension payments. And we were talking about solvency of pensions. The one thing that each and every one of our listeners needs to understand is that there is no such thing as a guaranteed pension from any corporation. I mean, corporations have gone out of business all the time. I mean, I think of WorldCom, I think of Enron. There's other corporations that have gone out of business. The airline, a lot of airline industry, or a lot of companies in the airline industry have gone out of business. The reason why we recommend taking a lump sum distribution, if it's available, in your pension or if you have if you're lucky enough to still have a defined benefit or pension plan from your employer the reason why we recommend to take that cash lump sum payout is to be able to maintain that flexibility in retirement and not rely on your former employer to be making those monthly payments to you because you have to understand those monthly pension payments are not hedged or not adjusted for monetary inflation so what buys you uh, in 2015 is going to buy you a heck of a lot less the payment, the same payment you're getting in 2020 or in 2030. So that's the reason why you want to take that lump sum to have that flexibility and also to have access to those assets in case you do run into an emergency or want to be spending a little bit more that you can afford to spend a little bit more than what your pension payment uh, you're receiving is going to amount to. But the other reason is that if a pension goes insolvent, it gets turned over to the PBGC, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. And the thing you have to understand is the PBGC has multi-billion dollars of unfunded pension liabilities, and they have a cap set. On the maximum amount a pension recipient can receive on a monthly basis, and so if you were lucky enough to be receiving a very sizable, say a four or five thousand dollar a month pension payment, well, last I checked, which is it's been a, it's been a while since I've checked, but if memory serves me correct, the PBGC's maximum monthly payout is less than three thousand dollars a month. So if you are receiving a four or five thousand dollar monthly pension payment and the pension gets turned over to the PBGC, you just sliced sliced your pension Regardless of how much you're receiving a month, you're going to get less. Yeah, you're going to get less. That's right. And something else that we've talked about on past shows, some horror stories concerning these pension payouts, and I've read this right out of the Wall Street Journal, is the actuarial firms crunching the numbers have run into situations where they find out that a pension has been overpaying pension recipients for years and years and years and one day a pension recipient goes to the mailbox receives a letter stating oh we've overpaid you over the last 10 years $150,000 you need to pay that back to us immediately or we're going to cut your pension benefit in half until we recoup that that overpayment
3: it's rare it's rare it's very rare but it
1: happens yeah, right. one thing that struck scary. me
3: was was this of, that was on page two of the Going back to
1: the article, uh, and the article titled, let me get back to the title, The Surprising Amount Retirees Spend, um, the Roadmap for Policymakers... An American's view of the retirement crisis from the National Institute of Retirement Security found that in a survey of 801 Americans, 67% said that they would be willing to take less in salary increases today, today in exchange for guaranteed income in retirement. And again, this goes right. This is laid right to the feet of this pension benefit. This the secure the secure feeling you get from receiving that monthly check from a pension or from an annuity, and unfortunately these payments are not adjusted for monetary inflation. And we constantly talk about monetary inflation on the Money Wise program because not enough folks in the financial service industry are talking about it. Monetary inflation is the silent killer to the value of your retirement nest egg.
3: Well, what what I see here, when I see people wanting to take less salary today for this Guaranteed amount not of money, a, quote unquote, guaranteed <clears throat> in the future. And the one thing you don't want to do is whatever that payment you're getting at age sixty-five or sixty-six, you're not going to like it at age seventy-eight, seventy-nine. I, I I will guarantee you that. Oh, you're using the G yeah, letter. yeah. That's the guarantee. The <laughs> guarantee is you're, you're not going to like it. you're not going to like that amount of money ten years down the road. The one thing I'm you know I'm only seventy. I'm not I'm not you know I, I I'm not. Retired, retired. But the one thing that Jeff said that is is the most important word is that flexibility. You cannot give up flexibility. And here's people saying, Oh, if you just pay me less money I'm, today I'm willing to get take you know, less money trying, and give up
0: flexibility.
3: And give up flexibility. No. No. I mean this this But is, that's fear talking, Dad. See right. that's the thing. This
1: is fear. These sixty seven percent of these eight hundred and one people surveyed This is fear. This is
0: the 67% that the annuity
1: community focuses on. That's right. These are the fearful people that we've talked about last year on a show, the Dalbar study of overly emotional investors constantly remembering their losses and their failures and not remembering their victories And because of the 24-hour news cycle, because of the volatility that's here to stay on Wall Street, it's never going away, and I don't think it's ever going to get any better.
3: You know what I would like to do if I was retiring, if I thought in terms of guaranteed, create a laddered government bond portfolio knowing that interest rates are going up in the future and that guaranteed amount is going to be going up in the future. And guaranteed by the federal government.
0: Instead of taking salary increases in exchange for a guaranteed income in retirement, how about they keep the same salary but contribute more to their 401Ks and build up their 401K nest eggs and stop being so fearful about day-to-day movements in the stock markets or what this pundit is is saying and that pundit is saying and just pay yourself more in, in, in accumulating retirement assets now because taking a ex, accepting a lower salary for in exchange for a guaranteed income in retirement that's baloney you, the, the what it's it's just never that this guaranteed income in retirement is not going to be enough to fund a, comf- a, uh, for, a comfortable retirement. retirement for for most people it's just not so so Pay yourself first now with your increased salary by contributing more to your 401Ks and have some money in stocks and have some money in bonds and have some money in cash, but don't have it all in bonds and cash because you're never going to beat monetary inflation over the long term if you're not willing to
1: take a little bit of risk now. And and if any of our listeners would like to have a deeper powwow concerning their particular financial situation, you can reach us in our office on Monday at 906 0070 or toll free at 1 800 275 2162. And with that, from my father John and my brother Jeff, this is Kyle Davidson saying, Have a fantastic weekend into your financial health. We will talk to you next week.